Good morning, everyone. Such a blessing to see you and to worship the Lord together. How blessed we are to have such a Father who loves us, who reveals himself to us, sends the rain, and congratulations on braving it and getting here. Praise the Lord for that. Hebrews chapter 6 is where we will be today. And let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to come before you together as a body of Christ, and thank you that you have done everything to save us, that you keep us, that you provide hope for the future, that assurance of salvation that we can rest in, and it's in Christ in whom our faith rests. And we, we delight, Lord, to do your will, and I ask that you would speak to our hearts today, that we would take your word personally, that we'd have an understanding of it and learn how to walk according to it, and help us not to be as those uh, believers that Hebrews was written to who had come to need milk when it was time for them to be teaching. Uh, help us to mature, Lord, and to grow. And we pray that you would help us and turn our eyes to you with great joy. In Jesus' name, amen. The font size of your Bible could be small, but it's not like the fine print that's used to cover or limit liability. Uh, that, that very small reading that you need to get your glasses out to read. Uh, and people can use vague language, very general terms. They don't want to be hypocrite. They don't want to lie. And so they'll just say something very blanket that gives them a lot of latitude. But God uses absolute statements. He, he's like, I will do this. I will do that. And we can have confidence in what he will do. I, I really recently read uh, the exhortation to, or really, the comment of God's character to Samuel in 1 Samuel 3.12, he said, when I begin, I will also make an end. I was like, wow, like God, God can say that. I can't say that. I have begun many books and I have not finished them. Anyone with that one? You've started many projects that you never finish. You, you never even really, you, you started it in your mind, but you never actually put it into practice. Or you started a sentence and you couldn't remember where you were going with that thought. And you go, oh, I forgot. God doesn't forget. God doesn't wriggle off the hook. He knows all things, and he says what he says he will do. And he remembers what he said. I say something, and I say, did I say that? God doesn't say that. He knows what he said. He begins, he will make an end. God's not lazy. He's not distracted. He is faithful to perform his promises. Paul wrote of total assurance of God to the church in Philippians 1.6. He said, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We've been born again. We have assurance of salvation. We've been justified. We've been set apart. And we will be glorified with him forever based on the, upon his promise and who he is. He's able to do that. When we're born again and made new creations through faith in Christ, we're adopted into his family, and we are assured of everlasting life. It is based upon him and his promises, and we have his love, his protection. All of our needs are met. Now, despite having the assurance of God and his word, those exceedingly precious promises, the Hebrews, to whom this letter was penned, had forgotten. They had reverted, they had regressed spiritually, 
in their zeal for the law. They were dull from hearing. They were stuck in their old ways. It's like the, God's revelation wasn't having its proper impact in their life. So they weren't growing to spiritual maturity. If we're content with only salvation and have no desire to grow to maturity or to be useful in the kingdom of God, that could describe you of reverting back to be, but your, your faith is genuine. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You believe that he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And you have said, I will follow you, Jesus. You've confessed it with your mouth, but there's been this regression. There's been this backsliding away from the reality of who God is and what he's called you to do. The God who knit babies together in the wombs of their mother, he designed them to grow, to mature, to be able someday to walk and to talk, to make decisions, and in Christ, to follow him, to lead others to him, to walk in his ways, and and to love him because they want to. Beginning our passage in Hebrews 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. The Jewish believers, they had backslidden spiritually, But the writer of Hebrews was not going to dwell only on foundational topics. He says, we need to move on from those things. And he said that because their faith was genuine. He's not questioning or suspicious that their faith isn't genuine. There was no, they were like a building in need of renovation. They didn't need a new foundation. They had the foundation. They had built on Christ. But it's like the walls were built were out of alignment. They weren't plumb anymore. There was water intrusion. There were, there were issues that needed to be dealt with. But he's like, okay, we're not going to go back to the foundational stuff. You guys know that, but you need to walk in light of it. Let's go on to perfection. The only way that this could be said is if you were building on the right foundation. Have you ever heard of, like in rugby, a coach says, we need to have a complete game next week. Now, it didn't mean that the game before had ended at halftime. Oh, the game had been played, but there had, they had not been complete in all phases of the game. They hadn't executed their plan. There were uh, mishandling of the ball and knocking on, players being out of position. There was miscommunication. The kicking game was woeful. Right? There were aspects of the game. They had a plan. They did not execute the plan. So they're saying, we need to execute in all phases. Every time we have the ball, every time we're defending, we need to, have, we need to execute our plan. A good team always has a plan, but the best plans are useless if the players are unwilling to change, to be in the position and do the thing that the coach has told them to do. The scheme. Right? They're, they're in this scheme. That's the way that they're going to win. It's not enough for us to know biblical facts. We have to put the wisdom of God into practice personally, continually. When that opportunity presents itself, when that guy's there to tackle, you've got to bring him down. You can't be having your own ideas and thinking, well, we can win if I do this. The Hebrews had this unique relationship with God as his elect. They were once chosen by him, the one to whom he revealed himself. He gave them his laws. He dwelt in their midst. There was no other nation that had this relationship with the living God. 
where he thundered from heaven and spoke to them, that he gave them those laws, on command, the commandments on tablets of stone. In the law, there were many shadows. None of these things mentioned here were totally new revelations. They were actually built on, they, were, they came out of the law and the first covenant that God made with them. It's like the light of the world, Jesus. He, he shed new light on these old foundational doctrines of Judaism. He fulfilled them. Think of repentance of sin, faith in God. That existed under the law. Baptisms. Notice it's plural. It's not the same word that we use when we are baptized because this is talking out those ceremonial cleansings that they would do. So they would wash their hands whenever they ate, after they finished eating, before they went to the temple. They would have to wash. They would have to bathe in a mikvah before they could offer the, bring the sacrifice for the um, high priest to offer for them. This laying on of hands. Well, they did that after they brought the sacrifice and they were, like, in a sense, transferring their own sin. They were acknowledging their sin and their need for the sacrifice as they would put their hand on the head of the animal when it was being killed and slaughtered for that offering. The immortality of the soul, the resurrection of the dead, it wasn't a foreign concept. We read Job 19, 25 through 27. He said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. He had this longing for God in eternity. Eternal judgment, that was something written about plainly in Daniel 12 too. It says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So these are all in the Old Testament and there's many references like this. They were added to and fulfilled in Christ. We repent of our sins, we put our faith in Jesus who is the Son of God who has come down from heaven. He's the source of living water, the Holy Spirit who fills us. He cleanses us. Hands were laid on believers because of the sacrifice Jesus had made that they could receive the Holy Spirit and go out and be useful for him. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain for us. He's the Redeemer and Judge of all. It's like, we'll expand upon these topics should God permit but we're not going to relay that foundation because the, you have the foundation. Continuing in verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Verses 4 through 6, they've been interpreted with many points of emphasis. Let me begin by saying these verses in no way should cause us to doubt the assurance of salvation we have through faith in Christ and the gospel. People who've experienced guilt for their sin or who identify with a, a backsliding Christian, um, they may mistakenly fear that it would be impossible for them to repent and to return to Christ because they've tasted, but then they've departed. And actually blame God for their unwillingness to return. See, see, I can't repent. I can't, it's impossible for me to repent because I've tasted and I'm a lost cause now. 
What's impossible with men is possible with God. The truth is, it is possible to fall away. It is possible to apostatize. It is possible to willingly depart from the faith, return to worldly living, to keep up the appearance of walking with Jesus, to to have these kind of spiritual disciplines or exercises, but our hearts being far from God. That was like the Pharisees, right? They had the law. They kept the law, but they rejected Christ. They trust in their own works to make them righteous before him. People talk about losing your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation like you lose your favorite book. You can choose to throw it in the bin. And you can, once throwing it in the bin, remember where you put it and choose to dig it out again. It's like you haven't lost anything if you know where it is. If you know where you put that book, you can go retrieve it. Salvation isn't something you can lose. There is always hope in this life for all who seek Jesus. Yet if we depart from him, let's not think there's salvation anywhere else. God's not going to force salvation upon an unwilling, unbelieving soul, especially one who's experienced his blessings and chosen to reject him anyway. He won't force you to be saved. One who's experienced that filling of the Holy Spirit, the new birth, who's feasted upon the good word of God, will trust in Jesus to save them. They won't return to the law to try to prove they're righteous. It's kind of like, can you imagine a Christian Jew going up to temple with a sacrifice, thinking that unless they offer this lamb, they cannot approach God? Well, hold on. Didn't Jesus supply that atoning sacrifice once and for all on Calvary? Are you really trusting that sacrifice if you think it depends on you to wash your hands and to bring this offering so that you can be acceptable before God? What good is repentance if our faith is not in Christ? Like we have to trust him. The one who worked for their salvation after supposedly receiving Christ, they would see no need to repent. They would be self-assured of their righteousness, and thus their faith is not in Christ. They've departed from him, thinking they can save themselves. Now these verses, they have impact on beyond the Jews who return to law and to Christians today. This falling away is more than falling into sin. It's a condition of the heart. It's a decision of the mind. It's ironic that people I've spoken to who are deathly concerned about losing their salvation, they make little effort to live for him today. Like, well, if you love him, don't you want to follow him? Don't you want to draw near to him? Don't you want to seek him? Like, that should be more concerning than the fact that you could lose something that, frankly, do you even value? Do you even have it? Because if you have Christ... You want him. You will pursue him. The purpose of salvation is not primarily to avoid hell. It's to have a relationship with the living God, the one who loves us, the one who's given everything for us. Judas, he was a greedy thief. He betrayed Jesus. Jesus called him to follow him, but he chose suicide over repentance. Peter, he denied Christ, but see how he responded. He repented. And he was restored by Jesus and was made useful in the kingdom. Now, there are some who take this passage, uh, one of them, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, and they limit the meaning of it. I think the limit could be extended beyond, but they will limit the meaning 
to uh, the danger of a Christian moving from a position of true faith and life to the extent of becoming disqualified for further service. I believe that does connect with this, but I wouldn't limit it strictly to that. The fact that apostasy is possible, it's like the, the fact that divorce is possible doesn't mean that marriage isn't good and can be continued in. Just because someone can depart from the faith doesn't mean our faith isn't secure and legitimate and real. Something we can have assurance in because of what God has done, what he has said. And if you're concerned that you are one of those who has fallen away, come to Jesus in faith right now. Repent of your sin. Come to him. He is where you will find salvation. He's the only way. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, not the, the prospects of suffering in hell. Knowing that God is good, we come to him. It's not like we're running away from hell and he's the only option. Now, some of us can come to Jesus that way at the beginning. I think as a child, I was more in that vein. But having known him, having experienced his presence, it's like he is who I want. I want to be with him. I want to please him. The person who's falling away in this sense, they continue to do the very sins that Jesus died on the cross to atone for, deliver them for, and cleanse them from. And this desire to repent, it's not something good in you, it's something God does in you. So if you have a desire to return to him, if you have a desire to repent of your sins, you haven't fallen away, as this verse says, that there's no hope for you, it's impossible for you. No, it, with Jesus, all things are possible. Like what Pastor David Guzik said, he summed up the verses like this. The idea is not that if you fall away, you can't ever come back to Jesus. Instead, the idea is if you turn your back on Jesus, don't expect to find salvation anywhere else, especially in the practice of religion apart from the fullness of Jesus. That's the crux of it in the context of how this was written. It's a compelling point we all ought to take to heart. Continuing in Hebrews 6, verse 7. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. I really enjoyed the rain last night. I didn't even mind being woken up by that thunder. I was like, whoa, what was that? Uh, I thought the fan was breaking or something in the room. It's a little disoriented. But God causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He causes it to fall on ground that will be fertile and ground that will just bear thorns. God's gracious. He's generous. He's good. Back in Jesus' day and to this day, a farmer who's cultivating the land is not content for it only to bear thorns. It's like they wanted to bring forth a cash crop, something their family could eat something they could feed to their animals and they could survive on. And in their day, they didn't use herbicide, they burned it. And it was the farmer who's cultivating the land who says, you know what, we've got so many thorns, so many briars, that we just need to clear this land. And then that would give like a nitrogen boost to the soil, things would grow better, and the seeds that were on all the thorns and briars would be burned up so they wouldn't germinate, and they would be able to plant the good seed and kind of start over. In the same way, God's the one who determines if our lives are fruitful or not. He's the one who's cultivating it. He's the one who's given us the good seed. 
Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3 that the lives of Christians at the end judgment, they'll be revealed by fire. We will be judged by Jesus for how we've lived our lives, how we were stewards of the things he's committed to us. The burning in this passage is one of rejection and near to being cursed. So he doesn't go all the way, but he says, you wouldn't blame a farmer for burning his field that was just weeds and thorns and briars. And we know that thorns, those are a result of the fall, right? You wouldn't blame a farmer for doing that. So understand God, he is the cultivator. He's the one who decides whether it's fruitful or not. Please turn to the words of Jesus in John 15, 1 through 6. He speaks of being the true vine. I think this, these verses dovetail very well into the point being made. John 15, verse 1. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. A branch grows out of the vine, right? And Jesus says, if you're connected to me, you will bear fruit. We've been grafted in through faith in Christ. And he's saying, apart from me, don't imagine you can be fruitful. It's like a branch that's cut off from the vine. What's it going to do? It's going to wither. And Once it's dried up, they throw those into the fire. The fact that withered branch was once connected to the vine, it doesn't mean that it's going to be fruitful now. It's it's past being fruitful because it's been cut off. Now, we were once dead in sins and cut off from God. And this is cool, right? We were dead. We were never alive spiritually. But by grace, through the gospel, we have been born again. We've been made alive. We were dead in sins, and now we're alive to God, and he lives through us. He can do the miraculous and resurrect what was dead. So there is hope for us in Christ. Even if you look at your life and you say, I just see deadness. I don't see any life here. I don't see fruit of the Spirit evident. And God gives us the opportunity to see what is in your heart by the things that you do, by the things you say. We're not saved because we're fruitful. But we will be fruitful if we're being saved because we are connected to Christ. We are abiding in him. And the choice to abide, it's yours. Will you choose to abide in Christ? Or will you think that your salvation, you can merit it in some other way? God knows the hearts of men. He doesn't need to see fruit to convince him of what's on the inside. I was just reading today about uh, Samuel when Jesse's oldest son was brought before him. And he says, ah, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And God said, don't look at his appearance. I have rejected him. I don't see people how you see people. And apparently, Jesse, he didn't even bring David 
It was the, the one that he thought would be least likely to be needed. In fact, not needed. Just stay out with the sheep, David. That was the one that God chose. So Samuel, the prophet, got it wrong. He's like, the Lord's anointed. He's like, no. Uh, Jesse, is this all of your sons? No, there's one more. He's with the sheep. Well, bring him in. We're not going to eat until he's come in. So God, he knows the hearts of people. He knows. It's for us to see. The works of the flesh are those evident in my life or the fruit of the Spirit. It's for us to repent. He gives us the opportunity to repent and to keep repenting, to keep following him, to keep choosing him when there's a lot of options in the world. Hebrews 6, verse 9. You've hung in this far, good. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. The writer of Hebrews, he again affirms the confidence in the fruitfulness of the Hebrews. He calls them beloved. Again, he's not doubting their salvation. The harsh reality that he spoke about earlier was not due to suspicion they had fallen away. Some had gone backwards spiritually for a season, but there was no need to doubt the reality of their faith and the assurance they could have through Christ. Sometimes we need to hear a worst-case scenario to get our attention. You guys think that's true? When I worked at a refinery during a shutdown, there was a man who suffered severe burns on, at a refinery who gave the safety demonstration for us. Now this guy, he's heavily scarred on his face and his arms. He said, years ago, I was a tough guy. I thought, I don't need to wear my suit in this plant. And there was an explosion. He says, had I worn my suit, this wouldn't have happened to me. But look at what can happen to you if you don't wear your suit. He didn't need to say anything. I could just look at him and go, I need to wear my suit when I'm on site. That Nomex suit could save my life. And he's like, I am fortunate to have survived that incident. I was stupid. I was young. I was careless. Don't make my mistake. No one who knows God wants to be rejected, near to being cursed, right? We don't want that. We want to be accepted. We want to be rewarded, to receive a full reward of our Savior who's given it to us. God was not going to be unjust to forget their work, their labor of love for, their, for his sake, their pastor, their current ministry. It's like God's not going to forget everything you've done. And God doesn't relate to us like a greedy boss. Um, someone who wonders, like, what has he done for me lately? That my recent performance is going to make the decision whether there should favor be shown or not. That's not the kind of relationship we have with God. It's not based on our performance. It's on his grace. He loves us like a son and a daughter that he's purchased with the blood of his only begotten son. So he's like, you're mine. You are precious to me. I chose you. I will keep you. I will reward you. I will never leave you or forsake you. We have him. He's so merciful, compassionate, and loving. While we were yet sinners, he sent his son to die for us. Turn, please, to Isaiah 49, starting in verse 13. 
It's like God gives us the warning before the consolation. We won't appreciate the consolation unless we realize the peril that we are in. Isaiah 49, starting in verse 13. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Zion, he's like, Zion is, is under siege. God has forgotten all about us. And he's like, I haven't forgotten about you. I know you've been afflicted, but see, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. It's like you're always with me. You are precious to me. And God, he's chosen us. He's made us his holy habitation. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. How could he forget us? He won't. And a mother, she could forget her child for a moment. Like, oh, where did he go? I was like shopping and suddenly... Not, not because it's a, a bad mom or inattentive. It's because kids run away. God knows where we are. He chosen us. He's loved us. It's an everlasting love. So it's not based upon what we've done for him lately. That he'll withhold that love now. Hebrews 6.11 And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. The Hebrews worked. They did labor in love unto the Lord. They ministered to the saints. And they were encouraged to show that same diligence and full, the full assurance of hope until the end. Believe that this promise is for you. Believe that you are assured of salvation already, regardless of what you do to try to inherit it. It's by faith and patience you inherit the prophet, promises and the examples given of Abraham. Faith keeps trusting even when it doesn't feel like we're progressing. Diligence keeps at it because we know it's good for us now and it will be good in the end. That God has started something and he will be faithful to complete it. He will do it. They were to be confident in that expectation of eternal glory with Christ. Running the race that God set before us, it's hard, it's tiring. I guess for some, it's longer than others. Right? It's a long race. But the Lord, he upholds us. A baby cannot choose if he wants to grow up, but the baby can choose if it will eat. The baby is not conscious of what this milk is doing in its body to help it grow big and strong. But God knows what he's doing. We're called to feed on God's word and his faithfulness, to learn to rely upon him, to take that little baby step of faith. That's a huge step for us. It involves us trusting him and saying, unless you catch me, I'm falling. Unless you 
help me, there's no chance, I'm afraid. Faith that leans on God. It's through faith and patience we inherit the promises. And God had made this promise in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God said this to Abraham when he was 75 years of old, and he and his wife had never had a child. And he said, of you I will make a great nation. Well, how could that be? And he didn't wait for a child before he left Haran. And it was 25 years later before God fulfilled his word to him. When he was 100 years old, he has Isaac with his wife, Sarah. Faith in God and patience caused Abraham to inherit the promises. Caleb and Joshua, they followed God's leading. They went into the land of promise. They spied out the land. But it would be 40 years before Caleb would utter those immortal words, therefore give me this mountain. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I will drive out those giants who are there. God told Noah, it says, who had found grace in his sight to build an ark, to stock up on food because he was going to bring a flood that would destroy the world. A hundred years later, (laughs) Noah and his family and the animals entered the ark. It says in Genesis 6.22, Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. He didn't earn the right to be saved. Interestingly enough, though, he built the vessel that would carry him. And he remained in that ark for a year as the water subsided. Can you imagine him jumping ship like 40 days in? Well, the the rain stopped. Let's get off this boat. I can swim to shore. No, he stayed in the boat until it ran aground. And after many, many days, the waters receded. And when it was ready, when it was time, he left. God brought him out. Hebrews 6.16, For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. God did not have to swear for his word to come to pass. He says, whatever God says he's going to do, But God, he is immutable. That means he does not change. He's not subject to change. And we find something here that's impossible for God to do. To lie. So God did not lie, and he also gave an oath. So it's like he doubled down on what he said. So we can have total confidence and assurance in what he's promised. And the result is strong consolation. That's comfort, alleviation of ministry, Uh, excuse me, alleviation of misery, refreshment of mind and spirit. That's what consolation means. So we have fled to Christ for refuge. We have found strong consolation in him. We have the hope of faith in Christ. To the Hebrews, this this mention of refuge may have reminded them of the six cities of refuge that were scattered throughout the land. That if someone had accidentally killed someone, they had committed manslaughter, they could flee to these cities and be safe from the avenger of blood. 
because the avenger of blood had a responsibility to ensure that the death sentence was carried out upon the one who had committed the murder so that the land would be cleansed from blood. But in some cases, people, it, the guy was swinging a hammer and the head flew off and crowned his buddy. Well, he could flee to that city to be, have a fair trial. And as long as the high priest was alive, he was guaranteed safety, freedom within the city until the death of the high priest and then he could go on. Now we, we have fled to Christ for refuge, not because we're innocent of murder. We are guilty as sin. We don't deserve to have refuge. And he is an eternal high priest. He's never going to die. So we have to remain in him. We've sought refuge in him. We fled to him. We must abide in him. We must stay with him. And thus we are saved because of him, what he's done. Isn't that cool? By faith and patience, we inherit the promise. As long as we trust and abide in him, we are assured of his provision, his protection, his perfect peace, his love, and fruitfulness. Last verse is here in Hebrews 6, 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The hope we have in Christ, it says here, is an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast. An anchor, we know, is connected to a ship to keep it from drifting, to keep it from running aground, to provide some stability in a stormy sea. Roman anchors, surprisingly, I didn't know this, but they bear a strong resemblance to modern-day anchors. Now, I do have a picture of an anchor on a ship I actually worked on. If you could put that slide up. Can you guys see that? See the little people? See the big anchor? <laughs> that anchor, that's on the USS Nimitz, and it weighs 30 tons. Now, I never got to see that anchor when I worked on that ship because it was always in the water. It was there. It was connected but I couldn't see it. Now, each one of those links of the chain, I want to get my numbers right, 164 kilos each link. They have to be taken apart and heavily painted to keep them from uh, rusting. The chain is 330 meters long, weighs over 10 tons, the, the chain. And there's two anchors on those ships. The ship weighs 100,000 tons, and that anchor holds that ship in place. It's like that anchor on the Nimitz, you can be out in 200 meters of water, and that anchor can go down and find a good fixing point on the seabed. Christ, he has gone into heaven. We no longer see him, but he is an anchor for our soul. It's like he has us. He's holding us. Though the seas are stormy, though... The way is that the visibility is poor, and we don't know what's going on. We know that we have him. More importantly, he has us. Jesus is that hope. He's the forerunner. That's a scout. That's someone who's gone on before. He has gone to where we want to go someday, into the presence of the Father. There he is. He knows the way because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, I'm sure the children of Israel had some confidence in Joshua 
because he had been to the promised land before. He had actually entered it. Moses hadn't. Joshua had. Now, our confidence is not because someone's telling us something, but because Jesus has spoken, and he has gone to heaven, and he is the anchor. He is that hope that we have. So if you could please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. What a passage. I hope this just sinks into your hearts and just washes away any doubts you have that really realize that our salvation is in Christ and we are assured of this. We have his, that strong consolation. And if you're not experiencing that consolation, if, you're, if the, the peace of God is a foreign concept to you, look to him. Put your faith in him. Follow him. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Our hope is anchored in Jesus Christ, He's gone before us into heaven. You see all those words in there, the abundant mercy, his grace. We have been afflicted. We have faced griefs. But we love him whom we do not see, knowing that we will see him. We will be with him. We have been enlightened. We have tasted the heavenly gift. We are partakers of the Holy Spirit. Let's abide in Christ. Let's flee to him. Let's seek refuge in him. Let's celebrate our Savior with joy, who he, has, he is keeping us. It's his grip that none can break. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us that you have shown us abundant mercy. You've given us such strong consolation Lord, left to our own devices, we are shipwrecked, we are lost, we are sunk. But you have gone to heaven. You are that anchor for our souls, that hope that we have in Christ. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your perfect peace. And we thank you that you're the one who keeps us, the one who holds us, the one that we can trust and love. And I pray, Lord, we would go beyond I guess just being content to know Jesus loves me, to realizing how you have shown your love for us, to move on to how I can show love for you. Lord, develop in us such a maturity that it would not be of us, it would be of you, your spirit working through us, your word being fruitful in us, that the fruit of our lips, the fruit of repentance, they would all bring glory to your name. Lord, we cannot save ourselves, and there is salvation in no other but Christ. And we look to you and rejoice 
that you have opened our eyes to see. You have given us such hope. Lord, may nothing in this world deter us from receiving and rejoicing in the grace of the gospel and in your goodness toward all. In Jesus' name, amen.